The Bible reading for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you were here last week, this may sound familiar. Uh, you can find this in, uh, I've been informed that once again, the Bibles have different numbers. So probably somewhere in the 1600s, about a pinky's width from the end of the Bible. You can check the uh, table of contents, or you can just listen as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thanks, Jared. Hey, everyone. I know to some of you, three sermons in the prologue of John may seem like a lot. I assure you, um, between Devin and I, uh, Coming after a man who can spend a whole sermon on the word life, I could spend the whole sermon on the word is, and like we could be here a while. And, uh, and it wouldn't, it might feel superfluous to some and pedantic, but it actually there is so much in these verses. So um, I really want to encourage you to go to um, Bob's seminar on Saturday. That like, you just have no idea. Most churches have nobody like him. Um, to have somebody who has taught all over the world, how to study the Bible in just every context among different language groups and peoples over time. Um, it, who's thought this through and refined it and has, it just, it's, it's, we've been talking about doing it for years and to have the opportunity to do it for yourself. There's so much, I'm just, we're just gonna, just gonna pass over in John that you could find if you just learned those skills and went after it. I have to keep reminding myself that um, sermons are for Christian teaching about how to believe and live, not just biblical exposition. Um, so here we go. Um, 
one of the things I loved about, so if you don't know, I lived in Florida before I moved here 13 years ago, and one of the things I loved about living in Florida was being on the water and fishing and stuff like that. And one of my favorite times of the year was when there was a certain kind of algae that created what's called bioluminescence, which is essentially light that comes from living things, right? And so there was this time of year, and I would always night fish during this time. I would go out at night, like when it was pitch dark out, and I would just be driving my boat through the water, and it would be like my motor was creating this like iridescent spiral of light in the water. And like, you know, you could just see light kind of radiating out from your boat. And if you're out in the boat long enough and you had to pee, then you made a, like a little circle of light in the water. And, um, but the most fun was when you were around creatures that were moving in the water. And you could kind of, they were making like, because every time the water would be disturbed in any way, th this algae would like light up. I, I have a little video that I took from the internet um, for you. It's not a, a great one, but there's not a lot of good. But these are mullets swimming through the water. Mullets are crazy little fishes that live in coastal waters that everything eats, and it's just swimming, and so there's this algae in the water, and as they swim, they make these streaks of light, right? Um, last week, I was, I was buying a motor from a guy who moved here from Washington State. He had been a cold water diver in Washington and in Alaska, and he said one time he was in this like eight-foot dinghy off of Kodiak Island, and there was some kind of like little krill in the water, and the herring had come in to feed on it, and the salmon had come in to feed on them, and some orcas had come in to feed on them. And so it's pitch black. This is Alaska. There's like nobody out there. He's out there in this eight-foot inflated dinghy with an eight-horsepower motor. He's looking into the water, and there's 10,000 eight-inch fish swimming everywhere. And then two-foot fish chasing them and these huge bastions of light. Now listen, I've seen the aurora borealis. It's beautiful. But I can't even imagine the magic that must have felt like in the pitch black in the Alaskan wilderness, right? That, that idea of um, life and light being bound together in this like strange dance, that the light itself comes from the life is kind of the picture there, right? And there's this, there's this almost this throwaway line that John says. He says, listen, he says, there was the Word. And then the Word in him, the Word was life. And the life was the light of men or humanity or mankind. Right? It's, now later in John, now you may be, well, I, Nick, I, I guess I'm wrong. I just always used to say, Jesus said, I was the light of the world. No, that's correct. We get to, John 8 and 9, Jesus just says, I am the light of the world. Because the word that's full of life, that is the light, we find a few verses later, is the one who comes and dwells among us, who is Jesus the Christ. Okay, so it's fine to say Jesus is the light. But in this passage, before we even know the word is going to become a human being, the word or the, the, mess, the truth of God ordered into message, which can create all of creation— which can order a chaotic universe, which is full of life, to speak life into existence, that life is the light that is the light of humanity. The light given to human beings through Jesus the Christ, who is the Word of God, is life. Okay, so you can say it this way. He said, that life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. So one way you could summarize this would be something like this. The life of Jesus 
is the light of the world. The life of Jesus is the light of the world. Now, we're going to find out, hopefully, in the next few minutes, that this has some really positive, wonderful implications for us personally, and some really terrifying ones for all of mankind. Okay, so one of the things I want to clarify, because um, all through John's gospel, we're going to get introduced to a number of really important categories that when they all work together, you can actually see the beauty and glory of God. And one of them is, is the idea that Jesus is the light, that he illuminates darkness. And in the Christian tradition, um, there has been a distinction between what you might call spiritual enlightenment and spiritual illumination. Okay? The concept of enlightenment has historically been, when you talk within religions and spirituality, is experiencing or finding your inner light. That there is light or revelation or truth inside of you, and looking inside and finding that light is what can, like, raise you to a higher plane of existence. You might just call that enlightenment. Now, the word enlightenment technically, etymologically, means to shine light into. That's why it's used for the philosophical movement from the 1700s, right? But, the, but you could see it's like enlightenment, that's how it's generally used in like Eastern religions and mystic religions and New Age religions and so on, right? Christians have tended towards the word illumination, which is that someone else's light comes to you from the outside and illuminates what you couldn't see that was right in front of you and alleviates your lack of connection with reality because of the darkness that was keeping you from seeing what was really there. Does that make sense? That is how John talks. John does not say that Jesus comes and, and helps you see the light inside of you. Now, you could speak in those terms. We're made in the image of God. Like the, but you see, in Christian faith, illumination at least has to be first. At least first in our darkness, we have to see God's light, that he shines. And then it says that the, his love and life is shed abroad in our hearts. We, there's an illumination that then shines inside of us. And then in the presence of the Spirit, re-enlivening the image of God in us. Could we speak of some kind of light inside of us? Probably. But John doesn't. John's like, no, the first thing you need to recognize is that we need God to illuminate. Otherwise, we're in darkness. Does that make sense? Now, you can see this in how the Gospel of John is structured. Everything John does. So in John 20, John says this, listen, if I literally told you about everything Jesus did, I think maybe I could fill up all the books in the world. Right? That was the ancient world. There weren't as many books in those times, but it's still a lot of books, okay? And he's like, he's like, I have just selected a few things from what Jesus has done, just a very few things, and I've laid them out truthfully to you as testimony. And, the, and I'm not just testifying all that Jesus did. I'm selecting a certain number of things for a specific purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And by believing that, you yourself could experience life. The life that he said in the first chapter was in the Word before he came into the world as the man, the very Word that spoke all of creation life into being. You could have that in you. And that happens by believing, which is just what this passage says too, right? That to anybody who believed, he gave the right to become a, a child of God. And then it's, and it says, born, not of anything in this world, but born of God. Meaning, because birth, remember, in the ancient world represents the coming into life. That metaphor. It's the, the means by which you come into life. You can be born of God. You can come into the life of God by believing. And so part of this whole exercise of John is, what are you going to believe? What do you believe about Jesus? And so he structures the whole gospel this way. 
He does eight signs. So he really just focuses on eight miracles of Jesus. You read the other synoptic gospels, and Jesus does like hundreds of miracles. There's places where it says like Jesus went to this place, and he just healed everybody who came to him. And you're like, well, how many is that? It sounds like a lot. But that's not how John reads. John specifically chooses eight miracles. That's it. And he orders them partially around then seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am this thing. And the word life is in three of them. Literally the word life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the other ones are metaphors of life, right? When he, when he is the good shepherd, shepherds basically keep the most vulnerable animal alive. Right? That's what shepherds do. And at night, they bring them into like a pen, right? And so he's the door that lets you into the pen so you don't get killed at night, right? It means that you belong and you're protected and provided for. So when he says, I am the door to the sheep gate, or I am the shepherd, he's saying basically, I'm the one who keeps you alive. I'm the one who can really provide for you. I'm the one who sustains your life, right? And then when he says, I'm the true vine, right? He's like, you're a branch on me who's a vine. What happens when you cut a branch off from a vine? It literally, he says, it dies, it gets cut off, and it gets thrown in the fire. There's no, what? Life in it. So you see how every miracle is a demonstration of the life of God entering a place where that life wasn't. Somebody who's, who's crippled is like able to move. Somebody who's blind can see. Somebody who's deaf can hear. Like something, somebody who's literally dead for four days comes back to life. Why does, why does he include the resurrection of Lazarus when other gospels don't? Because it's all pointing to Jesus is the life of God and the life itself. His displaying of God's life, that he is God's life in all these different ways, is literally the light. That if you can see how he's the life, you can see. Does that make sense? Okay, then let's move on. All right, so I'm just going to break this down to two things this morning. The first is um, Jesus' life is the light, right? In him, that is the word, who becomes the man, Jesus Christ, was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Excuse me for using the Anglo-Saxon instead of the Latin humanity. I think it says more. Um, You can think about it this way. In John's gospel, he uses this phrase, the phrase eternal life, 16 times. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that kind of phrase is only used eight times total. There are certain words that John uses a lot more because he's trying to, to connect ideas together and help us see them. And what he's trying to say is, listen, in this person, Jesus, is life. And that's why believing in him produces in you eternal life. It's also why rejecting belief in him produces eternal not life. The way he talks about this is specifically focused on us interacting with Jesus as the life. So in John 9 and 8 and 9, Jesus will say, I am the life. We'll get to those sermons. Or I am the light. We'll get to those sermons, right? Jesus is himself the light because he is the word who has life, who is the light. And in Matthew's gospel, he's going to say to us, those who believe in Jesus and belong to him, you are the light of the world. So this is really important for us to understand because one, we have to understand how he's the light for us. But then in some way it means he transitions the embodiment of this lightness, being the light, to us. Okay? So, okay, first, 
positive though difficult. Okay, so positive implication, positive though difficult implication, negative terrifying implication. Okay, so positive implication. In him you can have eternal life. That's what he's saying. Now, that may sound just like a cliche to you because you've heard it so many times. But that is the cataclysmic claim of the Gospel of John. If you, not by being a martyr, not by succeeding in some kind of crazy way, by simply accepting and acknowledging that this Jesus, the Word, is the life and the light, is the Christ, and you put your trust in him, that is, you believe in him, he gives you eternal life. Full stop. The gospel isn't the good advice, it's the good news. The activity necessary to accomplish the eternal life of human beings, which is the desired gift God offers to all people, has been accomplished already. You have been liberated. It's been done. You have to acknowledge and receive that which has been done. All that is left to you is belief. You have to choose to accept the gift. And if you choose to accept it, to any who believes in his name, it says in John 1, he gives the right. That is, not just, well, maybe it'll happen, we'll see. It's like, no, no, no. You can take hold of this thing, which is not really your birthright, but which is Jesus' death right for you. His will and testament is that you would have the right to that which is his, which is, you don't have to say it with me, life. And that's yours for the taking, for the grasping in this moment. And for those of you who've already said you believed it, for you to emotionally continually take hold of it. And th those two things are the same thing and slightly different. Okay, difficult implication, but positive still. You are the light of the world. Right? So he said you are the light of the world. If we cross-reference what John says with that, Think about this. When we seek to display the light of God to the world as Christian believers, what is the white-hot center of what it is we are meant to display? Do you see where I'm going with this? See, I normally think of it as, because I think of darkness and I think of truth, I generally think in terms of like, well, the way I shine the light in the darkness, right, is by being gracious and by being truthful. I need to tell people who don't believe the truth the truth so that they can believe it. And th there is an aspect to that, right? Light illuminates what is true, right? But what is the truth? And the answer is, at bottom, the truth is the life of God, right? John Carson used to tell the story about this, like, surly Anglican guy. He went to the University of British Columbia. And, um, he took a couple people, because he was an undergrad, didn't know anything about how to explain certain things about the Bible to people. He took these two people who were like interested in God somewhat in a Bible study to this guy. And he, and, and one guy said, look, I, you know, I'm kind of interested in religion. I'm interested in talking about God. There's lots of views out there. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, you know, I have some questions, right? And this guy who's like a graduate student and like training for the Anglican ministry and a blue collar fellow before that, he's like, look, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for that. Are you going to talk about, talk about blah, 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 blah. people talk about all kinds of stuff? I don't have time for that. I'm a graduate student. I'm not doing it. I don't have time for you. Okay, what about you? Why did you come here? Turns to the other guy, right? And the guy's like, well, I come from a family that probably you guys would call like liberal. Like 
We don't really go to church. We kind of believe in God. We're good people. We do good things. Like, I'm not ashamed of my past. I don't know what the difference is between me and somebody like you who believes like the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus rose from the dead and that it has these obligations that are quite clear and so on. And the guy looked at him and he said, watch me. Watch me. Come live with me. It's four months till the term is over. Why don't you come and live with me for four months and watch me for four months. And then you tell me at the end of four months if it's the same thing. Right? And the guy didn't take him up on li literally going to live at his house. But he actually took him up on it on watching him. And he did. And by the end of his term, the guy had accepted Christ. And 30 years later, was like a deacon at his church in British Columbia. I mean, the Bible actually talks this way, where, I mean, the Apostle Paul says, like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. People, the apostles would, 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 would speak in those kinds of terms. The, the life of God is in me. So watch me. Watch how I act. Watch how I act when people revile me and attack me and say terrible things about me in public, in person. Watch me. Watch what I do when things are hard on me. Watch me, especially when I'm dying of cancer. Watch me. Watch how I live. Watch how I die. Watch how I spend my money. Watch how I treat people that can't give me anything. Watch how I treat my children. Watch how I treat other people's children. You watch me, and you see if what you believe and what I believe is the same thing. If the life that is in you and the life that is in me is the same thing. You see, Jesus was willing to bet the credibility of his movement on that. He, he had this word for it that gets thrown around now, but it used to have a meaning, and it was the word love. Love one another. See, love is the supreme virtue. It is the full complement of grace and truth together at the same time, displaying forth its beauty, that is, its glory. Think about this. What does it say at the end of this passage? We have seen his glory, the one who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, life looks like grace and truth united in outflowing beauty. It's life. What we are supposed to display this world as the light of the world is the life of God. Which then Romans 8 tells you can never happen unless you walk according to the spirit of life. Which is his, Paul's word for the Holy Spirit. He calls him the spirit of life. As opposed to the law of sin and death. At the very bottom is not even first light. Not even first truth. Not even at first grace. The very bottom concept is life, which we'll get to in a minute. And from that, it is determined what must therefore be true, what therefore is gracious, what therefore is glorious. Our lives are supposed to radiate the life of God. We're at some point be able to, supposed to, be able to say, watch me. See what kind of life is coming out of me. And you tell me if it's the same thing that everyone else is doing. Right? And that should be a little bit terrifying for us because we're like, well, maybe it wouldn't. Well, that's the thing, right? And if that's true, that's a whole other sermon, but it means that you're not willing yet to live in Christ because you haven't really died to this world. You have to die to death before you can live to life. But that's another sermon, which we'll do another time, which is supposed to come up every week. Okay, now the third terrifying thing is this. And we'll get into this a little bit in John 3. You see, if the thing Jesus was offering was just graciousness, niceness, and you rejected Jesus, 
you might be rejecting grace. That is, the, you know, the goodness of God. And maybe you wouldn't be the recipient of the goodness of God. But if you felt like you were just fine the way you were, you didn't need any goodness from God, then maybe you'd be okay with that. Or maybe it was just the truth. And you're like, well, that's his truth. I can live in my truth. I, if I reject the, even the truth of God, maybe that's fine, right? But you see, if at bottom what Jesus is in his offering is life, and you reject him, and he is the life of God, the life, and you say no. Do you see what happens? You can't come back around later and say, how dare you not give me life? He is literally the embodiment of the life of God, not just the truth of God, and not just the grace of God, and not just the glory of God. Ultimately, at the very beginning point of the whole logic of all of that, he is the life of God, which means life can be found in him. But it also means is that if we reject the way God offers life to all of creation, if we reject the very word who spoke all of life into existence, the idea that we can reject that life and still have a demand and birthright to life in its fullness and eternal life doesn't work. We'll get to those stakes more when we talk in John 3, but, but the, the implications begin to come out even now when he talks about the world and darkness, which is what we're going to get to now, which is the light shines in the darkness. So in John 4.15, it says, he says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood or overcome it. That's a really kind of an interesting word because in, in English, you could use the word mastered, mastered. One of my daughters has been taking Calc 2, and one of our staff members has been tutoring her, who, and I, I just wish I could give her special treasure in heaven for that. Um, but she's been, she's been trying to beat Calc 2, right? And it's, it's tough, okay? Like, uh, and so she's been working so hard, and she, you know, she's trying to master Calc 2, right? Because if you can master Calculus 2 intellectually, like you really understand it, you recognize the problems, you know what you have to solve, and you can solve for X, Y, or Alpha, or Beta, or whatever, then here's the thing. You can do stuff with calculus. My, my brother's an engineer. He uses calculus every single day. And he has changed, with help, the water flow of major rivers on planet Earth with calculus. You master the thing. You can recognize the thing mentally. You can master something in real life, right? And this word in Greek means something like understood, but it can also be translated overcome. You see, John is just starting to intimate his theme of darkness and the darkness that we all struggle with, which is this. The light is something at first we just don't recognize. Right? The light starts to shine in the darkness, the light of this word who is going to be Jesus, and the darkness, which we haven't found out yet, but th this is a double reference. Right? Right now, Jesus is just the word. He hasn't—we haven't got the verse 9 yet where he be, dwells among us, right? So right now, he's just the word speaking creation into existence. And we're looking back to Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light, and he separates light from darkness. And darkness didn't understand the light, and that it had to be separated from it. The two were not the same thing. And the darkness didn't understand how the light just sort of overcame it when it glowed into existence. Because the light just pushes it out. How does that even happen? And darkness doesn't understand it, right? But what we don't know yet is yet that darkness— the minute you extinguish the light, we know that darkness just comes right back in. It overcomes whenever light goes away. And, and yet we're supposed to see that, no, wait, we in the world are in darkness. We people. And we are in it because we don't understand what the light of life is in this word. 
And we don't realize that when we don't understand it, we use our faculties, our capacities as human beings to try to overcome it. That is, we fight God. We don't realize we're fighting God, but we are. When we don't understand the light and we try to overmaster it, we're fighting the light, but what does the light come from? The light comes from the life. And what does the life come from? The ordering word of truth. So when we actually, without really understanding what Jesus or God is doing in the world, and we, and, and, and a light, some light of revelation or testimony comes forward and says, look, God is like this. And we're like, no, he's not. And we fight against that. And we try to work things the way we want to. When we fight that light, we don't really realize it, but we're fighting the life that is the very word of reality that is God. So when Christians say, listen, to be in sin is to be in treasonous rebellion against God Almighty. We're not saying, like you can see the blowing flag standard of God and you're throwing rocks at it, literally. It's that you are attacking the emissary that when you work it properly back is God Almighty himself. And so the problem of darkness is that we are literally fighting God. And when you fight God, the author of truth, reality, and life, you implicitly are fighting those things too, which doesn't lead to life. It leads to death and hurt and darkness and lostness and aloneness and pain and brokenness and slavery and oppression and injustice and hopelessness and, and race-wide suicidality. All while we're striving with all our might to live in other ways. Right? Now, all through the book of John, John's going to use all these ideas, and he's trying to work them all together so that you can see the tapestry of the thing, because part of, and I know some people won't, you won't like this, but listen, just, just hang with me for a second here. There is a certain amount of complexity necessary for beauty. Okay? Utter simplicity is usually not beautiful. Have you ever been out in an art museum? that had like the modern art where it's like shades of gray and there's this like painting and it's just like a gray square. And you're supposed to like admire this and be like, this, this is so deep. This is, and the next one is like shades of white. And you just know someone got paid for this. You know what I mean? Like honest to God, somebody got paid, paid for this, right? And, but, I've also been in like the, some of the, like the Renaissance, I think some of the stuff that was Dutch, where like they have to have 170 people in the painting. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, it's a little too much. You're like, you know, you could have just done like this square two feet and that would have been great. Like you didn't need the pheasant over here and like we, we would have been fine. Like there's a certain amount of complexity that creates optimal beauty and there's a certain, right? And that's true for the truth. Like, and so John is trying to weave together just enough things that you can kind of get your head around it, but not so many, so that you will perceive and understand the glory because our lives are fueled by joy. And so you have to see the glory, the beauty of God, to have the joy to operate in it, right? And so he's like, look, I want you to see how the Word of God, His, his truthful, logical reality is connected to His life, which brings light it's displayed between those who've experienced it through this thing called testimony, which allows us to believe even thousands of years later, right? It comes out of the generous grace of God, right? And so Jesus is the grace and truth of God, and it displays his glory. You know, he's like, do you see how these are working together in this incarnation of this 
person who is the truth, that is Jesus the Christ. And he looks all the way back to creation and the creation of light and darkness and life and, and creation teeming with living things. And he leaps forward to the Jewish people in the desert. And he says, he says, Jesus is like the tabernacle. Jesus comes and tabernacles among us as God. That is, God sent John the Baptist. And John the Baptist testified. And it was a big deal, but it was nothing like Jesus, who was sent by God like the like the human tabernacle of the presence of God. Something greater than the Jewish people in the desert ever imagined. This is a new moment when he's doing something spectacularly brilliant in a way we could have never hoped for. And he's doing it all at once. And he's like, but in order for you to really understand it, you got to understand the negativity. you got to understand why he did it. And you might think that he would have started with sin. Right? It's three letters. It's simple. Sin, right? Like, it's sin. But the thing is, is like, yeah, but he doesn't. What he starts with is darkness. So he starts, he starts with darkness, and he introduces this, this word he just calls the world, which seems simple enough, right? He says this in verse 7, he came, that is, that is um, John the Baptist at this point. He came as a, to testify, see, there's that word testimony, concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, I want you to see two things. One is, John is in, intentionally including everything and everyone in this metaphor. This expression of darkness and light literally includes all anthropos, humanity, all men, all mankind, all human beings, everyone. All humanity is included in this dynamic of darkness and light. He's trying to make that explicitly clear because it's going to be very Jewish from here in a lot of ways. But he's making very clear right now that every human being who ever reads this knows that you are in this question. That make sense? And then he introduces a concept that he doesn't introduce until this moment, and he uses the word four times, because he wants you to pick up on that he's going to use it a bunch more times, which is this concept of the world. Now, in John's gospel, he uses this word, in the Greek it's cosmos, right? He uses this word 78 times in 21 chapters. 78 times, okay? In all of the other gospels, it's used six times. Do you understand? This is like, I don't want to say it's the theme. I mean, Jesus is the theme. But what is the theme Jesus has laid over against? If Jesus is the positive theme of the gracious, loving salvation of God, the one who is grace and truth shown forth in glory, in light, who is the life of God and the word of God, what is that laying over? Is it sin? Is it, what is it? And the answer is, it's the world. That's what it's laid over. And that the world's major negative component is that it is in darkness. And because it's in darkness, every ounce of life that still exists within it is endangered and embattled. And if you don't see that, you can't participate in this light John is going to talk about. You can't believe in his name and in so doing, experience eternal life. Do you understand? Um, if, you, if we work through John's gospel, he, he, he gives us kind of a definition of the world right off the bat. So you could say it this way. These are my definitions, so like them or hate them. You know, okay. Uh, the, the, one, you could say it this way. Creations, the world is creations, disastrous, and darkened operations 
unconscious of its creator, right? He came to that which was his own, and his own did not recognize him. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. See, the irony is that we are literally his creation, and we do not recognize our creator. Now, if you are the creation of that creator, and you don't recognize the creator, that is going to produce some darkness. There's going to be some gaps in knowledge that are going to be very significant in what you think you are, and what you think you're doing, and how you think you're doing it. It's critical information that we will not know. And because we don't know it, we don't understand it, so we try to overcome it. And the calculus that we're building is not a God-honoring theology that fills our, our lives with his life and his light. Instead, we're building a human calculus to go against all the stuff that's in God's reality that we don't like to overturn it for our own advantage so that we can control it so that science really becomes magic and technology rather than a way of glorifying God and receiving creation and producing flourishing and justice. Or you could define it this way. Creation so darkened it cannot recognize. That doesn't seem like the right spelling of recognize. But that's what that word is. Or receive its creator. So he says, right? He says, he came to his own, but his own didn't recognize him. And so they didn't receive him. You see, if the critical thing about life for human beings is that we receive the one who brings life. We receive the one who purchases life. We receive the one who illuminates life. We receive the one who gives life. We receive the one who in himself is life. If that is the most fundamental thing, then receiving him is the most important thing. And if we don't recognize him, we can't receive him. Like, if people knock on my door at my house, especially at night, and I don't know who they are, it's very hard to receive them. You understand? And because of the darkness, we don't recognize him. And because we don't recognize him, we don't receive him. And because we are cut off from the light, we're cut off from the light and cut off from the word and cut off from God. See, that's the dynamic. And see, for 78 times, then John is going to be like, the world, the world, the world, the world. That's when, when you get to finally get to John 3.16, and he says, listen, for God so loved the world. You see that? That doesn't just mean everybody. Do you see what it means? The creator so loved the creation, utterly unconscious of him, in their chosen darkness, who refused to understand who he was, and who was intentionally trying to overcome him in their treasonous action against his light, his life, his word, and his existence. He so loved them that he gave his only son so that anybody who would believe could have everlasting life. Do you see the dynamic there? There's a lot more going on than just Hey, everybody. That's like nine minutes. We can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> um, so one way to think about this is, is that— Oh, sorry. That's connected to that. You, I can't explain that. Sorry. We'll do a, a YouTube video or something. I don't know. Okay. So— <laughs> um, Therefore, when Jesus comes, John says, listen, here's the miraculous thing. In the darkness, among those who wouldn't recognize him, about those who are trying to unlearn and overcome the very word itself, in the darkness of the world and in our humanity, this light who came and dwelt among us as the man Jesus Christ, he shines in the darkness. There is a light for all human beings that re-reveals the truth of God that you could see and believe in, 
It's true that the world did not recognize him. He said, yet to those who did, which presumes a minority, sadly. It says it's not many who will, who will see this. But to those who do, who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Um, a, f- a few years ago, um, I took one of my kids uh, elk hunting in Colorado with a, a per- another person in this church and a buddy out there. And um, we had determined and by the second day that um, there were at least three mountain lions operating in this square three miles around our tent where we were hunting. But there was still some game, and my daughter had a mule deer tag, and there were some mule deer still in that area. And so one evening, because part of the reason to go elk hunting with dad is to risk getting lost, to be out in the wilderness, to find your way, to deal with fear, and so on, right? That's the whole point of the exercise. So this daughter of mine um, went out on an evening mule deer hunt by herself, only about less than a mile from camp. I knew exactly where she was going. Um, Please don't don't tell my wife any of the stuff I'm telling you right now, okay? Um, so, um, anyway, it gets dark, and she doesn't come back for a while, okay? And so, I have a decision to make, right? Do I just wait, just wait on her, or do I go looking for her? Does that make sense? Now, going looking for her assumes judging her. Do you understand? Because I have to assume that the darkness matters. I have to assume that the darkness is the absence of light, and the presence of this darkness is going to make it very difficult for her to get back if she's not back already. And I need to also recognize that the presence of this darkness endangers her life in numerous ways that are significant. It's really cold out there. I don't know if she could start a fire. She may not have her possibles kit. There's mountain lions. She could have hurt herself. I don't know, but there are numerous things that could endanger life. So because the absence of life and the presence of darkness endangers life, I need to decide what I'm going to do. And so I have to start by acknowledging the truth of the presence of darkness, its meaning, its purpose, its action, and its dangers. It does me no good to deny the truth or minimize the truth or find the truth annoying or decide that I'm going to believe in my truth and just stay in the tent and eat some, like, hash browns. You understand? Acknowledging the truth as it is, is fundamentally necessary for life. Especially when someone is lost in darkness. Okay? But that doesn't get me anywhere. You understand? At some point, I've decided because of that truth, I'm going to put my boots back on, and I'm going to get two headlamps, and my possibles package, and my guns, and whatever I think I'm going to need, my first aid kit, and I'm going to go out and find her. That's grace. You understand? So that's what I did. Put my stuff back on. Said, I know where she is. You guys stay here. I'm going to go find her. And I went out, and she wasn't where I thought she was going to be. And I trounced around in the darkness for a while with mountain lions. And we never met or exchanged Snapchats or anything. But eventually I found her, right? And we—I gave her light. And we—I brought my life that supported, directed, corrected, and helped her life— and we got to where we were going together. Does that make sense? That's—and then she was very happy. That's glory. You understand? We need to recognize that in Jesus the Christ himself and in us, there's a lot of things that are important. There are a lot of concepts running around. But 
I was supposed to do this in the first point, but I'm going to do it now because this is here and you have to shoot the gun in the third act if it's on the wall in the second act. You know the rule, right? Everything in a light like this matters. They're all part of it. But the thing that draws the attention, the thing that makes it attractive is the filament, the shining out of light. And what we are taught in the scriptures is that light in Christian faith, in God, is the life of God radiating out of Christ into those of us who are converted believers, growing in holiness and discipleship. That's what is in us too. If we just yell the truth at people, we're like, look at this. This is so great. It's part of the lamp. It's really important. It is not the illuminating filament that will draw them to the very life of God. Does that make sense? And it is only when we really see that it is the life of God out of which everything else flows do we see how it, everything said in John's gospel, everything said in the gospel, flows necessarily. Because a lot of people want to say, well, Nick, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be the way God wants it like that? Why, why do we have to listen? It's, listen, it's, necess, it's a necessary truth. It's not just some arbitrary choice God made. Life is a certain way. There are certain truths about reality, and there are certain ways that life flourishes. Us accepting those and living in accordance with them is the truth, is life, is what is right. It is the light. And God demands we do that. When we don't, he calls that sin. And so there is no other option than the will of God that is in accordance with the truth, that's in accordance with, therefore, the life that God has created, and therefore is light shining in the darkness, and therefore it offers and demands. It offers that we might believe it and demands that we must believe it. Because it's an offer of grace to us that we can receive and flourish in, but it is also a demand of justice that God demands we not be oppressors and perpetrators against the very rule of life. And so we must turn by dictate of justice itself to him and receive forgiveness and life. These things were recorded so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, that you would believe in him, and by believing in him, that you would have life. Lord God, we pray that you'd help us. Um, I pray that right now people would be taking it upon themselves to believe, to exert faith, to make a choice of conviction and commitment to you and your ways and your truth. I, pr I pray that people who are afraid of what will be downstream of truth, like what will that mean? Will I have to believe things that like some Christians believe that I don't want to believe? I don't know the answer to that question. There are Christians that believe crazy stuff, and there are Christians that believe stuff that is downstream from your truth. But if we care about the truth, if we care about the light, if we care about the word, if we care about what, then we have to start with you. And I pray that you would help us to believe that we would at this moment be repenting of our sins, turning away from our commitment to darkness, and turn to your light, that we would be able to say and cry out to you, God, save me. I believe in you. Illuminate my way of seeing you and the world. Help me. And God, I pray that over us as believers as well, um, our understandings of the world and what it means to be the, the filament of your life radiating out towards our neighbors is darkened. Um, we, I, I fear sometimes we really put, um, we're really under a bushel or, or, or we're covered by something. It's so easy to let our politics, it's so easy to let our 
justification of ourselves and the choices we've made in the past and lived by. We, we want to affirm the things we've done, the choices we've made, the arguments we've made in our own hearts about how we're good people. Our appeal to incumbency or, or privileges that we have that we don't want to have to let go of any to offer to anybody else. Our restrictions and limitations on our actions of mercy because we don't think people are deserving of it even though they're dying for it and asking for it. Our unwillingness to forgive those who want to repent. Our and all the different ways we toy around with and mess with and play with accepting the light of life. And what you speak, we pray, that you would make us people who have died to those things and have received your death right, Jesus, that we would be born as children of God. And that we would accept our equality in that and our humility in that and the call to pursue justice in that and the call to proclaim that for all to believe. And that we would have the nerve in our lives to say, watch me. I'm going to try to shine this light in a way that's compelling to you. And also that we have the willingness to testify, to speak to it in such a way as to invite others to believe. Even in a world where people say, oh, there's many, many ways, many things to believe here. And we say, well, but what John said, Jesus said was, he was the light for all mankind, all humanity, every person for the world. Help us. God, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and minister. And even as we sing these songs, even as we worship to you, that we would, in the, in the, in the confluence of word, grace, truth, testimony, as these things flow together in a complex but not too complex beauty, that we would taste of the glory in the sensibility of our emotions and our belief, and that we would enjoy singing praises to you and enjoying you and honoring you for who you are, and that it would fill our hearts with joy and thankfulness, and that we would be helped and infused with strength in whatever difficulties we will walk out into between now and when we experience the absolute fullness of everlasting life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.